This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9 at the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This, of course, is MSP 113. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, MSP looked at some of the emerging technologies that could shape the next decade. Today, we're looking a little more in-depth at what those discoveries might mean for the way we live. And with us is our resident ray of moonlight on a hot sunny day, Matt Armitage. Uh, we're a business radio station, Matt. Uh, so obviously, let's start with the workplace. Hey, Rich. Uh, obviously, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, massive changes to our work culture over the, the next 10 years. Uh, now, it's certainly true to say that the gig economy has had uh, an enormous impact, especially over the last few years. A lot of positives and a lot of negatives. Uh, in terms of the positives, well, uh, it allows people to work flexible hours. So it's actually brought a lot of new workers uh, into uh, the economy. So mm. people who are carers, for example, uh, and want to work part-time, uh, people who prefer to work nights. So it gives people a, a bit more kind of control. Obviously, there's that uh, ability to earn extra income, especially important as we've seen a lot of kind of wage stagnation uh, over the last sort of five to 10 years. So at its best, the gig economy, it can be very democratizing and empowering. As I said, it gives people control. Mm. It allows them to set the terms. They can choose what companies that they work for. So it's, it's a very different method of working. I'm sensing a but. So at its worst... Well, yes, there are negatives too. So obviously you're regarded as freelance or self-employed rather than being an employee. As a result of that, you don't have that sense of job security. And there's a lot of um, social uncertainty that comes with that as well. Uh, in terms of um, practical issues, it can be hard to get uh, credit, uh, mortgages, loans, that kind of thing that actually require uh, those kind of wage slips for three months, your employment history, those mm. kind of things. You can also end up working very, very long hours. Now, often when you join these companies, there are huge incentive packages that make it look very, very attractive. Now, once those incentive packages run out, you can end up working, as I said, very long hours at very low basic rates of mm. pay. And of course, along with that status as a, a freelancer, there's a, a lack of benefits. You may not get medical uh, coverage or medical leave. You may not get paid holiday. And of course, there's also this element of it becoming a bit of a trap. Uh, you might be incentivized by the company to buy the equipment that you need to work for them. And you get into this situation where you've got really long, uh, really large loans with a long repayment period that are linked to you actually doing your work for that yeah. company. Uh, but you think it will still play a major role in employment over the next decade? Yeah, we're not going to see that changing, I think. Um, as I said, at its best, it can be democratizing. In developing countries, it really does present an alternative. You know, you get to work for yourself rather than in industries that might be even lower paid and more exploitative than uh, than some of the gig economy companies. Mm. There's this irony in that what we see is kind of a, a path downwards in the West in terms of working for a gig economy, a, a, a gig company can actually be viewed as a path upwards in other parts of the world. So I think what we will see and what we're already starting to see is more regulation of the sector. Uh, I think we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago that 
California especially is leading the way with legislation that grants many of the rights of full-time employees to gig economy workers. And will those gig companies fight back, you know, challenge legislation and, and look for loopholes? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, if we've learned anything over the last 10 years, it's that you know, what many emerging industry companies seem to want to disrupt the most are regulations and paying taxes. Um, <laughs> you know, that would be great if they were doing it for our benefit. But any time you shift the tax burden away from companies, it inevitably shifts back to workers, you know, everybody else in society. Yeah. Uh, and that's the same story with the hidden costs of loose regulation as well. You know, everything from environmental cost to more direct costs like healthcare and childcare. Uh, I think if one thing comes to define the roaring 20s as a decade, uh, I think it'll be the phrase, I'll see you in court. Uh, you know, last decade was very much about Silicon Valley disruption. This next decade, I think we'll see a culture of litigation. Uh, and, you know, we can see the scale of legal challenges already escalating. Uh, we've seen uh, the challenges to the new legislation in California. But there's also a flip side, which is protecting the public. Uh, we've seen the numerous US states filing lawsuits against Purdue Pharma and other pharmaceutical companies over the alleged mismarketing of uh, prescription opioids. Mm. And that has already pushed Purdue Pharma into bankruptcy protection. It's more or less a battle between people and companies. Well, the, you know, that's a bit black and white. Um, one of the things that kind of uh, gets on my nerves when you see coverage of things like the World Economic Forum at Davos is that it's often portrayed as being a them and us kind right. of situation. But the reality is much more one of shifting sands and moving alliances. You know, we make this grand assumption that big companies all share the same outlook. And that simply isn't true. I mean, look at Apple's opposition to selling data, mm. which puts it at polar opposites to Facebook and Google. Mm. Uh, tech companies with liberal progressive workforces are likely to back progressive social and environmental policies. But maybe uh, a fossil fuels or an agrochemicals uh, conglomerate is less likely to fight for cleaner air and water legislation that will impose costs or penalties on their operation. Some commentators have portrayed this as a, a make-or-break decade in, in terms of defining whether we follow a corporate-led path or a more publicly-oriented one. Uh, do you think that's the case? Well, again, as I said, you know, it's easy to think of these things as being black and white. Um, really, you know, what either side of the argument want to do is portray uh, we're right and the other side is wrong. Um, but with that kind of polarity, you always end up with an extreme result whatever happens. Mm. So unless we see a return to the kind of authoritarian corporatist model uh, of control globally, I don't think that's going to, uh, to happen. You know, there's this new tide of baby boomers. The global population is actually very young, despite the declining birth rates in a lot of developed mm. countries. And those young people are going to be the ones choosing what the future looks like, not the white-haired, pinstripe suit geezers who sit on the 60th floor of air-conditioned offices. Right, which brings us back uh, nicely to work. How much do you think that places we work in is going to change? I don't think radically, unless IKEA decides that the techno-psychedelic look is in for office furniture. It which, is in my room, you know. Well, yeah, in the, uh, at home, fine. In the office, uh, in the workspace, that might be a bit more problematic. Uh, but, 
you know, office blocks are still going to look like office blocks. Uh, office uh, Open plan offices, rather, are going to be cheaper and more space saving that something is actually more productive and comfortable for people to work in. So what I think we're going to see more of is kind of granular control. What, what do you mean by that? In what sense? Well, more tracking and oversight. I mean, that's a foregone conclusion. You know, AI systems will be monitoring us. They're going to be prodding us to do more or telling us when we're drowsy. I mean, I even heard of a, uh, a person recently who was working remotely for an American company and they would get a, a message um, every time they didn't hit the right number of keystrokes wow. in an hour. And uh, a, a video, uh, sorry, their camera would take a photo of them every 10 minutes and all of this data would be analysed. So if we end up with this more kind of utopian model, that same system could take a blood glucose reading and advise you to, you know, take a nap as your workstation instantly converts into a bed. Uh, I don't think there are any prizes for guessing which one of uh, those scenarios is mm -hmm. more likely to come true. Um what we are going to see is, you know, more control uh, in the or, or more granularity in the command and control systems of buildings, especially. So cheap sensors mean uh, climate and emissions can be measured workstation by workstation, mm -hmm. not just floor by floor. Uh, you may be able to individually control your own environment and temperature and humidity and all of these aspects. So that will give companies and building owners uh, much more control and insight over their energy consumption, their emissions, and that will allow buildings to, you know, switch their heating, cooling, lighting systems on and off a lot more effectively when systems aren't being used. And do you still think we'll have uh, smart clothing that regulates temperature within the next 10 years? Well, I think we're, you know, there are all kinds of smart fabrics in production. Um, I'm not going to go into them in depth. You can Google the numerous episodes of Geek Squawks where Jeff and I have gone on about this at length. I don't know if we will be there in 10 years' time, but it does make much more sense to cool or heat an individual than it does a building. I mean, mm. that's essentially what clothes are for. Richard's mm. actually sitting in front of me <laughs> wearing a parka because the, the studio's cold. So the idea of turning up to work in a suit in the tropics and requiring the building to cool the background so that you can wear heavy clothes made of wool... That's an absurdity that I think we've been promoting for far too long. You just want everyone to go to work naked. Trust me, I really, really don't. I have a lot more to lose <laughs> the, in that particular game than most people do. Um, you know, if people think we have body dysmorphia problems now, try moving to a competition-based socioeconomic model that doesn't include clothes. Um, quite the opposite. I think uh, we'll all be wearing formless high-tech sacks by 2029. Okay, after the break, future homes, money, and maybe even a little bit of entertainment. You're listening to MSP here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Burger. Fries, Milo, BFM, 89.9, The Business Station. BFM, 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to MSP. And before the break, we were talking about the ways that technology may shape our culture and society in the 2020s. So far, it's all seemed to be work, work, work. 
Well, that's the huge irony, isn't it? The 20s may be the first decade where we actually see less work for people. You know, it could be the first decade where emerging companies, emerging industries employ fewer people than the companies and industries they replace. I can't say industries today. Uh, That supposed truth has been a a mainstay of uh, economic systems since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I managed at that time. Um, And that has huge implications for the way that we fund our lives. Um, Careers are likely to evolve and disappear very rapidly. So, you know, you'll be working as a something one minute and uh, it will simply be eradicated by technology two minutes later. And that is also going to have a massive knock-on effect for the way we educate people as well. In the sense that we educate for a career. Yes, I know you spent 15 years studying at some of the most prestigious universities and post-grad institutions (laughs) in the world just to work here at BFM. Um, Richard's actually like one of those really senior specialist doctors. He's got so many qualifications that he's a mister all over again. (laughs) Gone all the way around. Yeah, you've gone all the way around. There's that doctorate in microphone technique, the post stop work in mixing desk technology. Uh, Not many people know this, but he published a five-volume work spanning three million words on how to deliver the perfect 60-second intro. Uh, The two years it took me to read it was actually the longest 60 seconds of my entire life. Now, sarcasm aside. Well, you know, it's weird that we look at education as something you do for a few years when you're young. Uh, I think we're going to see education much more in terms of being a, a lifetime achievement, so a, a lifetime of learning and retraining. Schoolrooms, of course, are going to change. Now, I don't know how soon we'll see virtual schools like the ones in the movie and book Ready Player One, but we are going to see a lot more virtual uh, learning. Mm. I don't like to call it gamification, to be honest. A lot of people do call it gamified learning. But online tools and AI do have the potential to give every student a much more tailored and personalized education approach. You know, it gives those that need it the extra help they need, and it allows people to learn at the speed that's most effective for them. And that's the kind of thing that even the, the best teacher can't do with a large class because they simply don't have the physical time to give each student that help. Robot teachers in the classroom? You know, we talk a lot about drone warfare and automated fighting vehicles and soldiers. And I think a robot teacher would have to be a whole (laughs) lot tougher than any of those. You know, I think we're going to be sticking with human teachers for a while. I don't know if you remember, there was a story a couple of years ago about a a security robot in a mall that was toppled into a pond. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine what school kids would do to something like SoftBank's Pepper (laughs) Robot. Now, you mentioned money. Ignoring the how we earn it aspect, um, are all currencies going to be digital soon? Well, you know, we've talked about this on the show quite a lot before. Um, Some countries are almost cashless already. And I'll be honest, I mean, I used to go to the ATM all the time in Malaysia. Now it's maybe once a week and I take out very small amounts. And most of that I'm just using to top up the card for paying my road tolls uh, rather than actually spending it. And it's, it's quite amazing that in such a short time, Malaysia has become a country where it's Almost, not quite, but almost possible to go entirely cashless. And what about things like uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, e-wallets? Well, I'm not convinced still about individual independent cryptocurrencies, you know, especially when it's primarily used as an investment tool that converts into 
real-life currencies. Uh, that fails the currency test for me. It's not stable. It's not predictable. It's not actually easy to spend. Uh, companies and workers demand all of those things of a currency. And of course, they're not as safe as government-backed currencies. Not that those are massively safe in every instance either. Uh, you know, for all that we've heard about the security of cryptocurrencies, we've seen these huge cases of fraud, yeah. sometimes actually perpetrated by the operators of the currency. And we've seen, you know, the supposedly impossible leakage and theft, especially in the exchange systems. So I do think we will see uh, central government backed cryptocurrencies, which will essentially just be evolutions of the currencies we use now. How those are going to connect, stabilize and exchange and the speed that they'll do those things at, I think that's probably yet to, to be seen. So over the next 10 years at least, I think it won't be that dissimilar from the, the mechanisms and methods that we have now. But I would approach the idea of social media backed currencies probably with extreme caution. Mm. Um, what about e-wallets? It seems like uh, even my next door neighbor has their uh, own e-wallet system nowadays. Well, I'll admit to everyone that you just told a rubbish joke that I basically forced you yeah. to make. Yeah. yeah. But there is a, a kernel of truth there because, um, I mean, recently I, I found out that a restaurant chain I often visit has its own e-wallet. Uh, you get discounts if you load it and you can use it at any of the various outlets in the chain. But why do I want to do that? You know, sure, discounts are great, but why on earth do I want to prepay for my food? That's not a real benefit for me. You know, this is a, a sector that I think is long overdue a regulatory shakeup. Uh, we hand over often relatively large sums to companies that make it very clear that they're not banks or finance companies and they're not governed by the same stringent codes of behaviour or regulations as those financial institutions. There could be more risk there. Well, you know, I, I'm not going to say it as a, a blanket, um, but, you know, this is boring, but it might save you some money. Um, you know, wherever you are in the world, check what regulatory framework that that e-wallet you're using is operating under and what protections that it actually affords to your money. In the majority of cases, the e-wallet provider will be fully responsible. They'll be a transparent financial player. But don't be that person who switches their salary into an e-wallet because you get a load of cool free wallpapers or something equally silly. <laughs> and how do you see these uh, wallet systems evolving? Well, I don't think they're going away. Um, as I said, I think they're going to become more tightly uh, governed, both from a user and uh, operator point of view, um, so that, uh, for example, you can't use them to uh, transfer dodgy money peer-to-peer, -peer, for example. I do see them becoming a lot more like social media platforms. Um, obviously, in China, we've seen that they already are becoming mm. those uh, things. One of the reasons I think that Facebook wanted to pursue Libra, uh, its currency, was for that reason, because Facebook has to incentivize you to open and use the app. An e-wallet is something that you open numerous times a day, paying for lunch, snacks, groceries, petrol, transport, whatever. Mm. That's a more natural home for your instant messaging, for your inbox, for your micro gaming. You can chat to a friend and instantly lend them a tenner. So yes, I foresee the challenge of the e-wallet being to the social media space over the next 10 years. 
Health and happiness aside, uh, how will we be living? Well, we did a few shows last year um, and a little bit beyond on MSP about uh, new building materials. Uh, MSP 71, our inexplicably popular Superwood episode. Uh, We're seeing material science making inroads into the way we build uh, buildings and homes, methods that are greener, more sustainable. What seems certain is that new homes are going to get smaller because more people, finite land, that means more cost. Mm. Um, So to be livable, those places will have to become a lot smarter. We can use things like prefabricated modeling so it enables us to build off-site. We can deliver and uh, assemble much faster and more cheaply, but that still doesn't solve that land use issue. So it looks certain that new builds will get smaller and they will get higher. Super towers. Well, I do hope not. You know, we keep hearing about the possibility of the kilometre-high skyscraper. I mean, that's great for housing large quantities of people, but I'm not sure what your quality of life is Mm. really going to be. Uh, Another model we've seen mooted, and I discussed this with Jeff last year, was this uh, pilot or concept for mobile hotel rooms. Essentially, they're automated cars or automated trucks that have this living pod and they drive around all night um, turning roads into real estate. Now, it sounds quite practical. It's definitely innovative, but that's really dystopian even for me. Um, You know, you ask somebody where they live and they say, well, you know, the federal highway mostly, but occasionally, you know, I am resident on the inner ring road. Uh, Now, uh, with that in mind, what about autonomous cars? It seems like we've been promised them almost as long as well flying cars. Well, yeah, it does seem like it's been almost 20 years that we've been promised this already. Uh, There are still plenty of experts who don't think we'll see them on the roads in large numbers anytime soon. They think that the machine intelligence systems are not mature enough, that the sensors are still not good enough, that they still simply can't compete with human drivers in terms of overall competence. Now, obviously, again, that's a moot point. We may have better cognitive functions in general than machines, but humans are horrible, erratic drivers. Uh, We will certainly see uh, a lot more than the current pilot schemes that we've seen in kind of selected cities around the world. Um, But something we've highlighted again on previous shows, the systems for autonomous vehicles will probably work better if all the vehicles are autonomous Mm. because they can communicate, they can potentially reduce congestion because traffic will flow more freely through the cities simply because they're talking to each other. Mm. Uh, It treats traffic flows basically as a machine. Humans are that disruptive wildcard, turning at the last minute, jumping traffic lights, accelerating and braking rather than going with the median traffic speed, Uh, most of which, I'm not going to say which, uh, I am guilty of. Um, But what we've yet to see is what public perception will turn out to be once those machines are involved in serious and probably fatal injuries, collisions and accidents. Even if it reduces injuries overall? Well, one of the nice things about humans is that we don't tend to look at the people who haven't been killed or (laughs) injured. Uh, I mean, you can imagine the headlines now, 2021, autonomous cars kill nobody. 2022, self-driving cars kill 250,000 people. You know, that's Skynet, Terminator, Matrix type numbers. Mm. It doesn't matter if the reality of that headline is that in 2021, there were essentially no autonomous cars on the roads to kill anybody, or that their introduction in 2022 led to road deaths decreasing from half a million to 250,000. The headline is still, machines kill quarter of a million humans a year. Now, 
You do know that there's no time for entertainment now. I mean, that's practically the motto of MSP. That should be what it says on the tin. Um, we did the show a couple of weeks ago uh, about uh, CGI movie stars. So definitely, I think we're going to see uh, a lot more virtual stars, singers and influencers. Uh, we're going to see, uh, I think, a lot more nostalgia. You know, the digital generation is eating up shows like Friends. So I think we can expect to see the return of uh, Northern Exposure, My So-Called Life, and, of course, Everybody Loves Raymond. So next stop, 2030. You listen to MSP here on BFM 89.9 Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.